There's one time that I can remember firing a, a tank main gun round that I felt like it was sexy. Well, there's a few times, but one time in particular was, uh, at a training called Mojave Viper in uh, 29 Palms, California. And we had just done a company volley, which meant all 18 tanks in my company had counted down and fired simultaneously at targets, which, you know, is fun to do. But also if we needed to do something like that on a battlefield, there's not a force in the world that wouldn't shrivel up and go home right. after 18 tanks fire at the same time. It shakes the earth. My tank platoon weighed over a quarter million pounds. We made the earth shake when we went places. So having all those tanks fire at once, that was a lot. I mean, if you want to compute that kinetic energy, go ahead. It is, it is a lot of boom and impact all at once. And this poor coyote in California couldn't handle it. <laughs> and he took off. <laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup, and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. So this is Six Ranch Podcast with uh, 180. We are going to twist this up a little bit. I'm Greg Jones. I'm sitting in the stone with very good friend James Nash and Kenny Poole, who we just got done talking about. Smoke jumpers versus repelling. And um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I got to say, that was a lot of fun. And I've known Ken my whole, or most of my adult life. And I got to say that there's probably a hundred phenomenal stories that he didn't even touch on. Um, so, with that said, the there, reason for this there's uh, often a part two. You know, there is yeah. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. As as you've been a victim to yourself, I think this is number five. I Might really be. do, yeah. yeah. So as I said, we're in the stone and we're doing a one eighty. There's a lot of my friends and a lot of folks that are fans of Six Ranch podcasts that have said, "Well, what about this? Well, what about this? What what about Mister Nash? Does he know this? Does he like this?" What does he think about this? And so there's a lot of questions out there. And so I posed the question to James, what if I interviewed you? And he hesitated for about a split second and said, yeah, let's do it. So 
here we are. So I've got a lot of questions written down. Uh, this isn't more, this isn't, as in your intro, this is not sage advice for the hunt, for the hunter uh, fishermen out there. This is, I think this is to get to know James. And um, let's just dig in. What a flattering thing that is, first of all, right? Um, I think a lot of people are are more interested in themselves than they are in other people. And in a lot of conversation outside of podcasts, in a lot of conversation, people only listen to someone else because they know it's their turn next. And when you have these these long format intentional conversations, it's not like that. Everybody's listening. And because we've got these microphones and these headsets, it's it's a really focused conversation. And that's one of the things that I enjoy the most about it is, is just how focused that, that conversation can become. And when someone else is interested in what you think or what you've done, that's almost a, a verification or validation that, that what you've done has been worthwhile. And, you know, that's, that's a great feeling. So for, for the folks that submitted questions and stuff uh, and want to hear this, thank you. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered. Yeah. I mean, there's through pretty much every episode, you don't stand up on a soapbox and say, here's who I am. A lot of podcasts do. They spend 60% of their time in that episode talking about them. And then we got our sponsors and, oh, my gosh, here's our guest. We get 10 minutes with him. I think that is what is special about Six Ranches is that we've got Stanley. Here's our guest. Let's go into it. And and the array of guests is phenomenal. I mean, I, I've learned so much. I mean, the one that stands out is, we're kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but the one that stands out is the Anaconda guy out of Florida. Mm. and on how he hunted snakes. But what stands out is the one time when he was going to go on a 10-minute little run with his wife out through the grass in his fan boat, and he gets stuck. He didn't take any water because he didn't need any. It's going to be a 10-minute run. That turned into almost an ordeal that almost killed them both. You know, it's like be prepared. It's never a 10-minute run. And so every episode always holds that that great little gym and in that you've got Mr. Nash that is always there facilitating pushing for those little nougats but we never really talk about him and so that's what I asked for and that's what I'm going to try and get through this and a lot of these are my questions there's a lot of them are, are questions inquiries that have come from people that I know so um, with all that said, for the audience out there, I think that um, if you don't know a lot about Mr. Nash and Six Ranches, I think you should look up Leopold and the Resilience to the Core. It was a very well done short piece. You can find it on YouTube, and that is um, Resilience to the Core, and it will show James in his home county where he grew up, it will show him in combat, it will show him afterwards, and it will give you 
a template, I believe, on who this guy is. So with that said, um, let's start with the ranch. Yeah. Over 100 years old? 1884. 1884. Gosh, he got me beat by four years. And I think that we're in the the Grand Ronde Valley for eight or so years before that. Okay. Um, so right at the end of the Civil War is when my family was like, yeah, these coast sucks. We're out. Generations. Five? Six. Six. Six generations. Six now because my little sister has two baby boys. Yeah, yeah that's right. Hank and Ira. That's right. You got Hank and Ira. Yeah. So, is this the ranch with you on your mom's side? Yeah. So, your mom, then you, mm-hmm. now your sister. Your yep. sister's taking it over with her husband? Yep. Yep. So, um, Adele and Mark have uh, taken over the, the cattle side of the operation. And while mom still lives on the ranch and as in, is involved in, in daily decisions, um, she's... She's transitioning out of that. She's handing those reins to her daughter. Yeah. Which good for her. Yeah. And it's such such an interesting thing that Adele this week is in New Orleans at the National Cattle Women's Convention mm-hmm. talking about secession. Um, because ranches don't get to make this transition very often. You know, the, the third generation is often the most difficult. And if it weren't for Adele, this fifth generation that I'm a part of would be very difficult as well because I don't like cows. They're they're a selfish and, and troublesome animal <laughs> that's always looking to die in a creative or not way. And uh, and I don't particularly like riding horses, although I've done a lot of that. I can't anymore. But the the ranch. I love the land, the water, the animals, um, the bugs, everything on it. I love more than I love myself. And I consider the place to be the biggest part of who I am. And I am, I myself am inextricable from that place. So it, it's, it's a huge part of my identity. And without it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am. You just destroyed twenty questions I had. It just you just can't answer welcome them all. To, welcome to podcasting, bro. You come into this with a plan, and then somebody just Spartan kicks it right down the well immediately. Oh my gosh! All right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, ad lib this here. Okay, <laughs> that was good. Um, I agree, hundred percent, because I was fifth generation. Yeah, and didn't make it. We've talked about that. Yeah. When I grew up in that river, there was we had seven miles of river. It was one of the greatest rainbow fisheries there was, and now it's gone. But to be able to still be involved in that today, to bring that back, to work on that, that land, it just never lets you go. I loved horses and the cattle end of it. Um, you don't. I love uh, that you're getting back into finding ways to help horses. And the selflessness in that, I don't think that you've, you've advertised at all. But what you're doing is for horses, and I think that that is really cool. Yeah. I, uh, I think the horse is the greatest animal in the world, the greatest species. Uh, their smell, what they will do for you. It's just a hairy chair with no, a bullet. No, no, <laughs> Anyway, it's kind of like the smoke jumper repelling thing, all right? They wear expensive shoes that they have to change often, even though it's the same kind every time. Dangerous on both ends and crafty in the middle. <laughs> the ranch. 
Yeah. Sorry. No, it's good. What, yeah. uh, there's been a lot of changes in the past to get to where that ranch is today. Yeah. A lot of changes. Mm-hmm. You've got to adapt. You've got to hope to make that thing work. What, um, what changes do you think are needed for that ranch to make it into the generations for Hank and his sister and on? So I think what's made it successful, and honestly, we've been studied for like to develop sustainability models. And one of the, the things that we've done that's interesting and I think has lended itself towards sustainability is that we've maintained traditions while remaining flexible and adaptive to conditions. And how in the hell do you do that? Like those seem like things that are at odds with each other. So, you know, over 30 years ago, we started running Coriannis. Right. And we had habitat that wasn't suitable to beef cattle. Um, at that point, it just wasn't being used very much because we had, you know, traditional English breeds on there. We got the Coriannis for rodeo stock. And then what we saw was that they were able to utilize this habitat that hadn't been previously used by the English breeds. And then, you know, we got really lucky because everything that we'd been doing was cohesive with what would later become like the organic movement. In reality, chemicals are expensive. Uh, We didn't feel good about using them. So we were killing weeds with a shovel, right? We weren't using fertilizer because... We had fertile soil as it was. We didn't need that. So our grazing practices and then the way that we were managing weeds lended itself towards organic, you know, agriculture. And it was harder, but what was really hard was the people that had to transition to that later on. Um, The people that had been using chemicals and fertilizer that tried to transition into organic, they had terrible years of of weeds and disease and, you know, all kinds of chaos in between. So we had a couple, you know, sort of lucky things happen that, you know, I, I don't know if luck is the right word, but I feel like we were doing the right thing and then it worked out. And one was that we were trying different stuff and Coriannis turned out to be a great thing. Like we, we started using a drought resistant cow right before we ended up with years and years of drought. We were able to utilize all the habitats on the ranch, decrease our feed bill in the winter. We had a more resilient animal that didn't need medication. And then it was suddenly a lot more valuable as a meat product because it fell into this like grass fed organic thing that nobody ever saw value in before. You know, honestly, before that point, like we kind of wish that we could corn feed our animals. We just can't grow corn. Right. And we're not going to pay to truck them to a place that can. So there's, there was some things that were intentional and some things that were fortunate, Hank and Ira will continue to need to have that same eye of like maintaining who we are, not forgetting where you come from, keeping an eye on sustainability. How do you make this thing run for hundreds of years? But how do you also try new things along the way and be willing to say that's not working. We're out. But also notice when something is working and you can make a subtle adjustment to make it your thing. Because when Coriani beef became our thing, that's what really carried us through some hard times. And, you know, it, it made the ranch so that we weren't susceptible to a fall market. You know, we, we had a steady price that we kept fair for us and it was fair for our consumer. And we could do that year after year after year. 
So, growing up, in your admission just a little bit ago, you say you're not a cowboy. You don't like horses. You don't like cows. But you love the land, correct? I do love horses. Okay. I just don't like riding them. Okay. Um, it hurts my back too much anymore. You know, and I I rodeoed in high school and college. Right. Um, rode horses a lot. I thought anybody up until like a fr- my freshman year in high school, I genuinely thought that anybody that didn't wear cowboy boots all the time was a hippie and that <laughs> being a hippie was a bad thing. So that, that was definitely my, my upbringing. And I'm, you know, I think I'm a fairly rigid thinker. So getting away from something like that takes an effort. It, yeah. Um, it did. And so that was kind of leading yeah. me up to the question. So, Going through high school, mm. looking at college and then military, was it was it was there pressure put on you to stay on the ranch, to stay as a rancher, to stay in the cowboy world, to not step away from that? Not really. Honestly, the biggest pressures for me were to stay in wrestling. Really? Yeah. Um, so I, I wrestled from the earliest of ages. Right. I, I was I was good at it. And, and I was competitive at, at every level that I, that I attempted. And when I moved to Norway, I wrestled for their national team. And I competed around Europe, and I did very well in Norway. Wow. And then when I came back as a senior, uh, I can't remember where that kid was from, but I wrestled an absolute animal of a kid. And he, he tore every muscle between my <laughs> left shoulder and my left ear. I hate wrestling. And I ended up uh, wrestling one-handed at, at the state competition that year and, and still did well. Okay. Um, so my opportunities following high school were still going to be with wrestling. And I dieted like crazy. So I, I would play football at, you know, 215 pounds. And then I'd wrestle at 160 or 171. Wow. And that 215 was like ranch kid weight. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I was fit. That's normal. You know? Yeah. Um, so I, I was dieting to an, to an unhealthy level. And I started doing that in sixth grade, seventh grade like just cutting weight insanely hard. And that was the culture around wrestling at the time. Not, not blaming myself or anybody else for that. That was just part of the deal. So my pressures started when I was a junior in high school wanting to go abroad um, to experience something else and to wrestle in a different place. My coach, who had been with me since, um, since grade school and, and had continued on into high school, He'd retired, and he said that he would come back out of retirement and finish off through my career if I did not go to Norway because he didn't want me to leave the country. And then I, I went anyways. God bless him. Love the guy. Yeah. Um, still do. But, uh, but I, de- I decided to go anyways. And then when I was looking at military academies, I had a very low GPA for military academies. Because I was like the king of the A minus. Um, I didn't have to try very hard to get an A minus, and nobody gave me crap about it. But that's not good enough when you're trying to be at an upper echelon institution like West Point or the Naval right. Academy. So the only way that I was going to be accepted into those places was because I was going to be able to wrestle for them. And I never really felt like, no, you've got to stay here. You can't go to college. You can't go to the military. You can't do anything like that for the sake of the ranch. But I did feel pressures around that sport. Okay. So making the decision to switch to Montana and rodeo was a little bit weird for a few people. 
but I, I still had lots of support from my family. Okay. What's the difference between a rancher and a farmer? Um, it's sort of like the difference between hunters and gatherers. I think that, that farmers are going to focus on crops, whereas ranchers are going to focus on animals. Some farmers uh, do have animals, but they're not on they're not on acreage. They're not on a large area. So I think that there's cow farmers out there. There's pig farmers out there. Whereas there's also cattle ranchers. And, you know, that means that those cattle are going to be out on some rangeland. And it's going to require a little bit more movement from both the rancher and the livestock to get through the year. That question was posed to me a while back and I failed miserably. I mean, miserably at that one. Maybe someday I'll tell you what my answer was, but not tonight. I think farmers are smarter. Um, yeah, probably because they only work. I mean, they get that break. They get that three-month break. They get a break. They get some more assurances. Uh, even if farming goes bad in the modern age, there's literally ins- insurance to help them with that. Uh, and while that does exist in animal agriculture a little bit, it's not to the same extent. Yeah. Let's um, let's jump to the next stage of your life. Let's okay. jump to military. Yeah. You had mentioned West. You you know applied for West Point. Yeah. You had the what the smallest GPA <laughs> I had ever. The, I had the lowest GPA that they accepted ever accepted. Um, that's and that's, a, that's a record. I like that. <laughs> I didn't end up going. Um, Let's take a rodeo scholarship with Montana State, right? Right. You know, I was 17 years old at this time and a little bit hedonistic, more maybe more than a little bit. So while I definitely had it in me to serve my country, you know, I I recognized that that nothing good comes for free and you got to earn it. I'd had to earn everything. And... I'd seen people who hadn't earned things that they'd gotten and they didn't find satisfaction in that. So that didn't look good to me either because at the end of the day, that's what we want from anything, right? Is to be satisfied. So it was, it was in me to want to serve, but I probably wasn't mature enough to, to do it on somebody else's terms yet. So an opportunity like going to school at the university of Montana, Western in Dillon, Montana, the trout fishing capital of the universe uh, where you could bow hunt on campus, where there's a gun room in the dorms, where you could see elk from the hall that I studied language arts in. That was a good deal. There's no girls at West Point. No, there, there are no girls at West Point. And, and that's, that's honestly, uh, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, that, that's part of your decision-making process. Sure, would have been mine. You would... I would be absolutely lying, and I think most people would too, if like that's not a, a part of your thing. So yeah, after a couple of years of high school rodeo, and I'm thinking, man, college rodeo's got to be like that, but even better. Sure, girls were a part of my decision-making process. But also, I didn't want to go to college in Western Oregon because I didn't really like Western Oregon. You know, I didn't have a good feel about the politics or the stigma or the rain. I didn't know how to recreate there. Moscow, Idaho seemed like it was too close. Right. So Dillon, Montana, you know, it's 10 and a half hours away. That's not too bad. And then they had this wonderful class schedule that was three hours a day for three and a half weeks, five days a week. And then he started a new class, one class at a time. Professors only taught one class at a time. Students only took one class at a time. Wow. 
So you focused intently on that subject and professors focused intently on teaching that subject. And I think what I've, what I've heard is that a lot of professors who are teaching multiple things at a time walk into a class and sometimes wonder which class it is that they're teaching right now. If you like the class, you got as much of it as you could handle. If you didn't like the class, tough, tough it out for three and a half weeks. You're going to be okay. And, you know, things that were really difficult for me, like probability and statistics, boy, those are brutal. You know, I'd spend three hours in the class. I'd spend two hours with a tutor. I'd spend an hour with a professor. I'd spend a couple hours at home working. I often had a job outside of school as well. And I could, I could manage all that. But that's what I needed to be able to get through something that other kids could just go to the class and do because I just wasn't smart enough in those areas. But if I was, you know, having to take two or three other classes on top of that, then I probably would have failed right. in those areas where I was really weak. Let's um, let's talk tanks. Yeah. Let's talk Abrams. Abrams, what, the M1, A2? The Abrams M1A1 was... A1. Was, okay. was my tank. The gotcha. M1A2 went to the Army, and the Marines used the M1A1. And the M1A1 is what we just sent uh, 31 of to Ukraine. Ukraine. As if they don't have enough problems. So that machine, that weapon, yes. is, is that your baby? Is that a beast? Tell me about it. That is another thing that you know I was so invested and involved in that it is, it's part of who I am. Sure. Like, I, I am... I am part tank and, yeah. and always will be. And I think that a lot of people feel that way. If you talk to a, a Korean war pilot, sure. what aircraft they flew, that's part of who they are. Yeah. And I think that's a particularly masculine thing is that we feel that type of connection with machines that, that women tend not to. But uh, yeah, the Air, Abrams M1A1 is a, you know, armored up. She's uh, between 71 and 76 tons. Has a 120 millimeter smooth bore cannon that's about 17 feet long. Uh, 120 millimeters, like four inches and change. The uh, ammunition that went in that main gun varied by type, but a lot of them weighed around 70 pounds uh, for for the whole cartridge. You know, the projectile would be right. less than that. She could run, uh, you know, up up to 60 miles an hour, ungoverned. Uh, didn't like that all that much, but you know, 30, 25 over rough terrain was like driving a boat over smooth water. So how many crew members? Five? Four. Four. Yep. So you've got a, a driver who's down in the hole. Right. And he's he's in the front of the tank and um he's looking through periscopes. Everybody sees out of periscopes unless you actually have your hatch open and can get out and look. So the driver's laying feet forward in a hammock looking through periscopes, and he's got a little handlebar um, like a bicycle, and you twist it back towards you for the throttle, and then there's a brake in the front. And uh, it's all a pretty simple operation down there. He can't see very well. He can't see anything until it's quite a ways out in front of the vehicle because he's looking out over that front slope. He's the junior guy. So a lot of people have the misconception that, um, that if you're a tanker, you're a tank driver, and they, th they think that that's super badass. But all my tanks were older than my tank drivers. Um, so they're 18, 19-year-old kids just getting started. The driver promotes to the loader. And the loader sits um, inside the turret, and the turret can spin. That's the part that's in the middle. It's a tight space. 
loaders are, you know, even though everybody shifts through that position, loaders are uh, almost always little tiny guys. A lot of them are barely bigger than the rounds that they're shoving in that gun. The loader has a, uh, a 7.62 machine gun, uh, which is a 308 fully automatic. It's on a pinnacle mount. It doesn't have sights. Um, it's like a spray and pray. I just like get away from me on this side of the vehicle kind of gun. And then he's responsible for uh, managing and loading all the main gun rounds, um, as well as managing the ammunition for the gunner. And the gunner is also down in the turret. He's down in the bottom of it on the right side of the gun. He operates the gun and the controls. And, uh, and he's also in charge of the tank when I'm busy. Um, and I'm often very busy. So if I'm talking on the radio to an aircraft or to one of my bosses or to adjacent forces or to one of my other tanks, then the gunner has to talk to everybody in my tank and operate all that. Um, he can operate the main gun and then he has the most underrated gun on the tank, which is the coax, the coaxially mounted machine gun. It's another 762-308 machine gun. We carried like 16,000 rounds belted together on, in that gun in a massive massive thing. So when you hear the, the phrase, the whole nine yards, yeah, that was originally the all length, of the length of, um, all, you know, all the rounds that were belted together in a machine gun. This would be like the whole 37 yards. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot. You would, you would cook out a barrel before you ever ran out sure. of it, but that machine gun is slave to the main gun. So it gets all the same gyroscopic stability and then the ballistic computation that comes with that computer system. And then you have the tank commander, um, which is what I was. He's in charge of everything. I've got uh, a pistol. I've got an M4, um, which is a, you know, 14 and a half inch barreled 223, kind of like an AR-15, but it's also got a three round burst. I'm far enough out of the military now that I think I can probably say without uh, getting in trouble that I took the trigger out of mine and I put in a Geisley two-stage trigger. Uh, so I didn't have three-round burst capabilities, but I could damn sure make my shots count. And, you know, I, 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 shot, I shot in the Marines the way I shoot hunting, which is to say that um, I want to do so accurately with the fewest rounds possible. And I also had a, a 50 caliber machine gun, the M2 machine gun that I could operate with uh, a night sight or a day sight. Um, it operates with a little solenoid switch that never works in the M1A1. So I had a piece of parachute cord tied to the butterfly. So after I would screw my handles um, to make sure that my traverse and elevation was correct, I would reach up and grab this cord and go, <laughs> bop, 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 and, you know, kill whatever need killing. And then just kind of like stop the bus. Life. You know, kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like, I want to get off here. Like like a little kid trying yeah. to get a semi truck to honk. <laughs> that's me firing a machine gun in a tank. What uh can you describe what it's like to be in those confined spaces with a crew for those time frames? Yeah. In those conditions. So sometimes you're in there for a long time, days and days. And there was one instance where we'd been in the tank for multiple days. And I, um, I had a, a cooler full of Snapple iced teas in the rack on the back of the turret. And I, I slowly became obsessed <laughs> with the idea of getting a Snapple. <laughs> and it, it consumed um, all of my thoughts. You should have Snapple for life because of that. 
<laughs> it it consumed all of my thoughts, and uh, eventually I broke down and I said, "Boys, nothing's happened for a while. Who wants a Snapple?" And I jumped up on top of the turret and I stretched, got like my back to kind of straighten out for the first time in days because it's it's a tight space in there. I'm telling you, it, it is not. I couldn't even wear my armor. Um, so my body armor had side plates that were like uh, like maybe twice the size of a deck of playing cards. They're called sappy plates, small armed protective inserts. You can stop a 308 round. I couldn't even wear those and get in and out of the turret. And this is when we were like starving to death, you know, because we hadn't had like real food in months and we we're eating. Goat. Like smoke jumper rations? You don't get those? No, we we're, we we're eating goat, goat soup and rice. Um, it was pretty, pretty friggin' gross. Although we uh, got a bag, a gallon Ziploc bag full of uh, single serving Arby packages, like the Arby sauce things right. from some random church in Iowa. Um, and I hope every member of that uh, church goes to heaven because that was a game changer for, for goat and rice soup. No kidding. It had a little Arby sauce. So that stuff did get there. It did. Yeah. No kidding. Random stuff would get there. Yeah. Um, important stuff often would not. We had, uh, we had some, some guardian angels that sent us, you know, huge amounts of gear out of their own pockets. You know, a, a gentleman... I, I won't. I won't say his last name, but his na- his first name was Mark. Um, Mark sent, I don't know, close to fifty thousand dollars worth of gear to my tank company out of his own pocket. That included cigarettes, um, chew, uh, GPSs for for our wrists so we could navigate, Leopold binoculars, uh, a thermal spotter which was illegal to send over there. Don't know how he did it. Well, um, really. No thermal. It's illegal to send thermals overseas. Is it? Uh, so, yeah, that that dude did that out of his own pocket without looking for any credit or recognition at all. And I think it's safe to say that that lives were saved in my tank company because of what he was willing to support us with. So, you know, huge, huge thanks to that guy. Well... But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting sidetracked here. No, what? Um, when we've all grown up shooting, what's it like to send a round downrange out of a out of a, a barrel, a muzzle like that? You know, it's interesting because from the outside looking in, you would think it would be it would be really cool. But in military training, kind of like what you're talking about with um, with your jump training. You don't train until you get it right. You train until you can't get it wrong. And there's a lot of process involved. And and one of the sayings is that pain retains. Sure. So you train in such a painful way with such repetition that that it becomes part of your psyche to do it in this specific way. Right. So by the time you actually get to the doing of the thing, you've practiced it so much that there's no sex appeal left. Yeah. So we're off. There's one time that I can remember firing a, a tank main gun round that I felt like it was sexy. Well, there's a few times. But one time in particular was uh, at a training called Mojave Viper in uh, 29 Palms, California. 
And we had just done a company volley, which meant all 18 tanks in my company had countered down and fired simultaneously at targets, which, you know, is fun to do. But also, if we needed to do something like that on a battlefield, there's not a force in the world that wouldn't shrivel up and go home right. after 18 tanks fire at the same time. It shakes the earth. My tank platoon weighed over a quarter million pounds. We made the earth shake when we went places. So having all those tanks fire at once, that was a lot. I mean, if you want to compute that kinetic energy, go ahead. It is, it is a lot of boom and impact all at once. And this poor coyote in California couldn't handle it. <laughs> and he took off. Um, and I took the gun because I, you know, I'm a tank commander and I've got control. So I grabbed the gun, my gun, put it on it. Um, loader loads Sabo. He loads a Sabo round, um, which is just a steel penetrator in practice. Uh, so it's, uh, I don't know, an inch in diameter or something like that. It's just steel. And uh, this long dart looks like a thumbtack, but all the, you know, the, the other parts of it fall off. Right. Um, and that's why it's called a Sabo. So we just have the steel penetrator going out there. Loader load Sabo on target. I shoot. And when you shoot this 17 foot, seven inch cannon that weighs over 2000 pounds and has a gun mantle, the size of that wood stove slams back right next to my left shoulder. And any time before I shot the main gun, I would sweep like this to make sure my loader wasn't in the way because it'd kill him if he was. So sweep like this, shoot. And uh, you can see in the thermals because it was at night. We were driving about 30 miles an hour out over the, the the kind of the um, the wadis and shit there in 29 Palms. You see this round arcing out there and you see the coyote running and uh, my my gunner, you know, he 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 was great. <coughs> he was great. He got he got killed um, on our first mission. One of the best gunners in the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, he goes, sir, it looks good. It looks good. And you can see this round coming in. The coyote's running and it hits and there's dust that sprays out everywhere and the coyote takes off. Uh, running off the side and he makes it, you know, 10 yards and he starts flipping. <laughs> and I, I, I had hit that coyote with that steel penetrator at 3,650 meters while we were driving and he was running in the dark. How far out can you do that? I would expect a first round impact out to 4,000 yards. 4,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And with a 50 cal... Um, 1,830 meters, I believe was what they said we were effective to, um, you know, I had, I had first, I always shot burst, usually a five round burst. So by the time you let go of your little choo-choo cord, right. you've usually got five rounds going down range. Right. Cause I think cyclic on that gun is about 600 rounds a minute. So pop, 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 pop. Um, I had first, first burst impacts, um, out to 2,800 meters with that gun well accurately on a let's say moped sized target right right for example let's um let's talk afghanistan okay what was the heat like was it was it something that those of us and unless you've been there you just can't comprehend you can't comprehend the brightness to start with that Does was it just hurt just it's overwhelming. Really? It's it's thick light. Um, I don't know that I ever saw a star while I was there. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of dust in the air. Yeah. 
and it's incredibly bright and hot. Uh, I saw, I saw temperatures in the shade of 130 degrees. Um, I saw temperatures in the tank of 150, which is uh, a well done steak. Uh, you almost can't drink enough water. Uh, you know, a lot of your coffees that get served to you are around 130 degrees. So let's back up. So when you said 150 degrees, is that inside the tank? Yeah. That's inside the tank where these four crew members, you're at. Yeah. Um, so you've got to drink a, just a huge amount of water to stay alive in that condition. And then the water you're drinking is hot to the touch. Sure. You can barely handle it. Um, and you've almost got to worry about like the plastic that the water bottle, you know. Sure. It, it's a lot. So you're drinking this water that is is scalding hot that burns your mouth but you've got to be drinking multiple gallons of it a day so almost constantly drinking water almost never taking a piss and you can't get out of the tank otherwise you might get shot um so if you do piss you're going to do it in a bottle but you're usually just sweating it out before that ever even becomes a factor uh it, it it's incredibly hot and then just trying to keep people doing this very difficult job under those conditions um, it's hard not to mention doing it yourself. Right. So, right. so first of all, I've got to do this job myself. Um, I'm, I'm commanding a tank platoon of four tanks in combat. We're trying not to get blown up by IEDs. I'm trying to talk to my adjacent forces on my radio. So my radio had three channels that would, that I would hear simultaneously. Um, one of them would be, uh, my boss, one of them, would be adjacent forces and one of them would be my platoon. So there's, there's three conversations going on all the time. And then I've got a little switch that goes ABC that I've got to operate back and forth for who I'm communicating out to. So I'm only ever talking out to one group of people, but I'm constantly being talked to by three groups in addition to the chat from the intercom of my own tank. So it feels a little bit like some of the scenes that you see in comics from like, um, superheroes that can hear really well mm -hmm. um, and they get overwhelmed that that's always the scene right is they can hear everybody all at once all of a sudden and they're like they're freaking out that's your whole life when you're inside the tank so you've got to conquer that for yourself first but you're also a leader for your other tanks in your platoon and those crews and then your crew inside the tank and you've got to be looking out for the welfare of everybody so the pressure that's on you as a tank platoon commander it's incredibly intense and you have no one to talk to, right? So there's very clear rules about fraternization. So I can't sure. like go to any of my enlisted Marines and talk to them about anything that's going wrong or, or that I'm struggling with. That's, that's not an option. I really can't go to my CO and show that type of weakness either. Um, so you're, you're all alone in this pressure and, and it's tough. It's a tough job. Ken, in the episode we did earlier, this evening in the stone, Ken mentioned his first jump. He slammed it in the ground and slammed it in so hard. I think it was 10,000 feet. Air's thin. Air's hot. Slams in, and he just goes, I don't know if I can do this, if this is what it's like. Did you, in the conditions you just described, in all that has been asked of you, did you ever have times when you think, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can 
be the man. So after me too. after the first time that I got hurt, um, you know, Corporal Daniel Linderberry uh, was killed. Shoot gunner. Yep. Yeah. Um, my my wingman was very badly injured. Lance Corporal Webb, Lance Corporal Bodel, both very very badly injured. Bodel, um, he lost the frontal lobe of his brain, wiped it out of his eyes. I put a piece of MRE cardboard over his forehead and taped it on. I thought that that we were all dead and that I was in hell. You know, coming out of that and having injuries of my own that were compounded by post-traumatic stress from from that incident, from seeing my guys tore up so bad and then having a brain injury and other injuries on top of that. And still being in a position where I had to command my tank platoon. Um, that was really tough. But one of the hardest parts of all of that was um, was honestly having to write awards um, for for Corporal Lineberry for for what what he did for those other Marines, and in the writing of those awards, I had to go back into incredible detail for what had just happened, like the most traumatic shit ever in my life, some of the most traumatic shit that could possibly happen to any human. I had to go back over it and write about it and draw diagrams of it and interview people about it over and over again for a couple months. That award process is incredibly lengthy and you get questioned on every award you write in the Marine Corps. If a Marine gets an an award, they absolutely earned it. You're not going to find somebody that got a bronze star for cooking hot dogs. So it's a, it's a tough process and, and reliving that over and over again, um, is, is against every medical doctrine of um, rehabilitation for post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, so there was definitely times during that, that I thought I'm not, I'm not tough enough for this. And I had opportunities to go home, right? I was definitely hurt bad enough that I could be like, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. And, and nobody, nobody in the world would have thought less of me for that. But there was a Fulberg colonel who was in charge of um, the troops there. And he came and visited me at the concussion recovery center. And, you know, he knew a little bit about me, knew a little bit about my background. And uh, he thought that the, that the best thing for me would be to get, to get back in it. Um, and he gave me both options. I also uh, knew who was going to replace me. And, you know, as long, as long as I felt like I was still able, there was no way that I would, that I would let, that I would let this other guy lead my Marines because I felt like even though I was hurt, I was more competent than he was. And, and that there wasn't a, a milligram of, of arrogance in that. That was just, uh, that was just the truth of it. Do you still want to lead those Marines? Do I still today? Yeah. Is that still in you? I mean, is there is there something that as being a tank commander of those Marines, is there is there still that pull that I still want to take care of my Marines? Yeah, and I, I talk to them all the time. Um and my my service to to those individuals is is for the rest of my life. So there's not a single one of them that could ask anything of me that I would not go do. Um, and it could be the most illegal shit you could imagine. 
and I'd be like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but no, man, th- those are my boys. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing that I would not do for them. So with that said, how does somebody like me or Ken or somebody that has not served, how do we say thank you? Because honestly, and saying thank you for your service to me is to me it seems flippant or ins, insincere. I how how does somebody that's never been there, that's never served, but but so holds those that have in such high regard? How do we say thanks? You know, I don't know what format it was in, but I think I've said this before. Um, there's been a lot said about troops serving because uh you know they serve the guy on their left and right right um you know that's that's who their service is to while they're in combat and that's that's very much true that's very much true it's like while while you're really in it everything that matters is not letting the guys around you down um and there's a functionality to that but there's also sentimentality to that that's you know very very powerful and important but before any of that, we, we volunteered during this time to serve because, because we felt like our homes and the people that made our homes what they are were worth it. So you don't have to say thank you. No one is owed your gratitude. And, and it doesn't really even feel that good for me, when people say thank you, um, if it feels good to them, then that's fine. But the best thing that you can do is just live a good life. Yeah. Be a good American, you know, be a good, be a good wife or, or husband or son or daughter or, you know, uh, involved member of your community or, or, you know, be a, be a rogue outcast that lives off freaking twigs and berries in the woods. Like just, Live your life well and understand that that even though you're very far removed from it, the way that you live is possible because of really horrible things. Yeah. And it it it's always been that way and it should always be that way that a few people suffer tremendously so that not everybody has to. Well said. Let's um let's jump to guiding. As a guide and you've been guiding a long time. Do you prefer hunting or fishing as a guide? Ooh. Uh, I like guiding hunters more. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Guiding anglers. Guiding anglers is fun, um, depending on why they want to do it and what they're getting out of it. There are some anglers that want something out of fishing that... I don't feel good about providing them. Uh, but I feel less of that with hunting. Okay. As a guide, can a person out there as a guide master all the aspects of guiding as, say, a jack-of-all-trades and cover it, or are you ending up as a master of none? Do you have to specialize, as in elk, deer? Do you have to specialize in lion bear type of deal 
So that's an interesting question because it's from, it's from an amateur look at what guiding is. And I, I don't mean that in an insulting way, and I hope that's not how you take it. Guiding is about how you communicate with a person and how you help them accomplish their goals much more than it is about how you interact with any of those species. So you can have a really basic understanding of a multitude of species and really be in that, you know, jack of all trades Mm -hmm. um, category with a lot of different species and, and ways to interact with them. If you're a master at communicating with clients, then you can become a master at guiding. Okay, cool. And I'm not, by the way, a master at communicating <laughs> with clients. I get that wrong every single year, multiple times. And I look back on it and it, it doesn't get me until months later. And I'll think back to a conversation or something that I said or something that they said that I didn't understand. I'll be like, oh, that's what that meant. I got that wrong. I rarely look at the way that I communicate with an elk and feel the same way. What um, what advice would you give to all those out there that are going to hire a guide or going to go on a guided hunt or fishing trip? How can that client be a better client? It's a great question. I don't know that many clients ask that question. Uh, it'd be cool if they did. But a good client should uh, should communicate well, first, they need to know what they want. So they need to know themselves enough to to be honest about what they want to get out of that experience. And then they need to be able to communicate that with their guide and with their outfitter. Outfitter first, that's important because the outfitter needs to be able to talk to the guide about it. Right. Um, so that's really how it should go. It's like, okay, I'm a client, I want to go do this kind of hunt, and this is what I hope to get out of it. So I'm going to do my research, I'm going to figure out if if this hunt actually has that to offer, and I'm going to understand that by talking to the outfitter and talking to clients who have been successful and unsuccessful with that outfitter. I'm going to go ahead and book, and then I'm going to talk to that outfitter you know, during that booking process and be like, hey, this is what I want. And then right before the hunt, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to talk to that outfitter and be like, this is what I want. This is what I need in order to be satisfied with this hunt. And, and if it's unrealistic, any good outfitter will tell you and can manage your expectations for, for what is actually available there. You can't go to, uh, to a McDonald's and ask for Chinese food because it's not there. So we've done that part. Now the outfitter, because he's a good outfitter, is going to talk to that guide and be like, hey, this is what this client needs. And this is how to make sure that they get what they need. And then that guide is going to break his back to make sure that that happens. You hope. If it's a good outfit. If it's a good one, yeah. What, uh, we're going to get kind of specific now. What hunt jumps out at you as being one of the best you've ever experienced? This is constantly evolving, but, you know, my favorite, I think my favorite hunt in the world right now is hunting for fish underwater. Um, Spearfishing offers me um, everything that I could hope for out of a hunt. Um, But for for hunting the way you were asking about, I love hunting in Texas. 
I like the travel down there. It's not, not too painful. I love the culture there. The food is incredible. The people are awesome. They're proud to be Texans. They're happy to have you there. They're great hosts. There's all kinds of wildlife available. You get to sleep inside afterwards. Um, the tortillas are incredible. And then you get to come home with food that you get to share with people that's that's really, really amazing. So tonight we had whitetail and we had Axis. Yeah, as um, we did on the grill. And Delicious. It was wonderful, it was right? Incredible. Fabulous. So the, the experience from that hunt, even though that was in December, is continuing on. You know, I got to give you guys both meat that I think is really special, you know, just on its own. Just on the label, I think it's special meat. In addition to that, I have this experience backing it up that makes those animals and everything about it special for me. So I get all this continued satisfaction out of it. And, uh, you know, it's something that I really wish that I could do every year. The guy that I hunt with, um, Brandon, he runs uh, El Sapo Guide Service. In, in a lot of ways, I think he's the ideal outfitter. And I use him as an example for all kinds of things that I feel like I, I can improve in my own business as well. Cause I feel like he's doing such a good job and you know, I'm saying nice things about him. Brandon is, is a friend of mine at this point, but before I hunted with him, I'd never met the guy. That's how a relationship should develop with an outfitter. And uh, you know, if, if you've hunted with somebody more than once and you don't feel comfortable just calling them on the phone to talk about your day, then you probably weren't hunting correctly. Because if you hunt with somebody more than once, they should be your friend. And not just a friend, but but that super special category of friend that we call a hunting buddy. Yeah. And nothing else is like a hunting buddy. Yeah. Right? That is sacred. Yeah. So because I've had such a good experience with him and even you know, the times that I've hunted Texas without him, I, I think it's just incredible. So it's, it's an all year thing. It, it's relatively convenient and affordable. It, it's a tremendous hunt. So I love hunting for access deer in Texas. That's, that's my number one. Over the years, I'd also kill three good men to go back to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Make a note of that, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, has guiding gotten easier or harder with knowledge and experience? The more you know, do the more you try and do, the more you feel you have to do? My try remains the same all the time. You know, it, you know given, given my, my physical and mental health at, at any given time, I'm trying just as hard all the time regardless of, of what my skill level is. So I don't think it it ever gets easier or, or harder. Did I you have that kind of dedication when you first started? I mean, I started guiding when I was fourteen. I know, right? Um, I was. Did you ever lay down in so, crushed gravel? So completely dumb. exhausted at fourteen? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I I remember uh, one day um, I'd been in the saddle. I, I think I'd guided eight trips that day, short trips um, for tourists. It was brutal. But I noticed that on these short trips, short trips get short tips, but you get a bunch of them. 
So, you know, I, I guided eight trips. I came back. There was another group of tourists ready to go. And the other guys were kind of hemming and hawing and jingling their spurs. And um, I was like, I'll take him. And I'd been in the saddle more than anybody else. So I felt a little bit insecure about saying that. Those guys were pissed because I jumped on the opportunity. But the owner, who was a national champion wrestler, said, I appreciate your work ethic. And I got to take those guys out and I got another tip. tip. And, you know, I, of course I was exhausted, you know, I was so tired and, you know, my horse looked like a, you know, shampoo commercial by the end of the day, it was so lathered up, but you know, we're working hard and, uh, you know, I, I always, I always want to want to work hard. I think that, that that's the equalizer that, that, you know, ranch kids, blue collar kids have is that when they come up against something that they might not have the mental aptitude to do, uh, they can outwork the situation. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so there's been a bunch of things that I've sucked at that I've tried really hard at and I've outworked everybody else. And that's almost always been to my benefit. The times that it hasn't been to my benefit it eventually has because the people that don't appreciate that extra effort aren't people that you want to be dedicating that work to. Yeah. What, uh, what's your dope? What's your heroin? What turns your crank? What pulls you day and night? Right now? Yeah. Spearfishing. Spearfishing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm obsessed with the thought of it. I'm trying to get them to change regulations in Oregon <laughs> so that places that have, uh, you know, unlimited bag limits on, on smallmouth that I can go spearfish there. I'm thinking about, you know, other freshwater opportunities that I have. And then I'm thinking about ways that I can work harder and earn more money so that I can get into warm places and, and advance my skills. You know, it's, it's such a mentally challenging, physically challenging, spiritually challenging hunt, uh, that is incredibly satisfying you know, being able to swim into a cave 25 feet deep with current, panicking, and get a spear into a freaking snapper, get back to the surface without dying, get that fish in the boat before a shark can nab it, <laughs> and then walking into a restaurant with that fish in a bag, having the chef come out and compliment your snapper, and then bring it back out to you cooked and watch a Mexican sunset while you eat that thing. I've never been more satisfied with anything in my life. That was freaking awesome, and I want more of it. That's cool. That's it. That's for now. so cool. That's awesome. When, uh, when you look in the mirror, who do you see today? Oh, it's not great. No? No. No. Um, you know, my, my self-image isn't isn't great. You know, I, I never feel like I'm doing enough. I never feel like, like I'm, I'm doing right by, by everybody else. Um, I feel like I can be doing more for my friends and family. I feel like I can be doing more for myself. Uh, my, my ambition for every aspect of life is insatiable. Uh, I, I cannot ever quite get, get enough. And if I set a goal that I reach, I find it to be hollow. I find that vacuous. There's nothing less satisfying than reaching a goal because that, that tells me that I didn't set a goal that's high enough and it, it just feels like shit. Uh, so I like, I like the try. I need, I need the try to get there. Yeah. I just don't do well once I get it. So 
Uh, I don't get to look back at anything that, you know, somebody else would consider an accomplishment in my life and see it as such. Wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Last question. And this was thrown out there a couple of times. You're going to keep the mustache. <laughs> so <laughs> the mustache, um, my little sister made an, an important observation about this. Uh, I got uh, a compliment when I was coming, when I was returning a rental car in North Carolina after a bear hunt from this really charismatic black dude. And he, he, he was really excited about my mustache and, uh, he wouldn't stop talking about it. And it made me laugh a lot. And I told that story when I got back and my little sister rolled her eyes and uh, she goes, Oh, so you're keeping it forever now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I probably am, unless there's like a terrible incident with a fire or something. Uh, There's there's a lot of of people out there that are hoping that, Oh God, please say yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, Teresa has been, been a mustache supporter Uh Uh throughout. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always easy. I eat quite a bit of it. <laughs> uh, it's it's terrible with the compound bow, and certain rifle stocks <laughs> like to claim pieces of it. That's why it's usually a little bit shorter on my right side than my left. And that that asymmetry drives me bonkers. Um, but yeah, it's probably here to stay, boys. Awesome, good, good. I appreciate um, appreciate you giving me the opportunity to flip the mic and to ask these questions. Um, from me and from a lot of the fans out there. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Fire away. Uh, when can folks expect episode one of the uh, the Stone podcast? Whew. We got a lot of talking to do before we get there. There's a lot of things to wade through. Po- I don't know if... A podcast is all talk, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh? I like the title. The Stone. The podcast in the Stone. It's fitting. We, uh, I think this is number five. Um, so since we've talked about uh, the stone before the, the stone house that you built, yeah. there is an addition to it, which I, I think is, is worth bringing up since you there two is. gentlemen were part of it. There is. Um, I was, uh, I'm going to say I was checker hunting with, with Ken here, um, a few years back, quite a few years, about five or six years back, which you love to checker hunt by the way, right? Yeah. It's a great, <laughs> great use of anyone's time. <laughs> That'll be a whole episode down the road. Um, I was out in the Waihee country, and um, I come across, I don't know, we were probably 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet above the water line, pushing, hunting for chucker, and I was pushing underneath this rim, and I come across uh, this inscription that was scratched into the, the sandstone, and it was Verl Thayer, 1917. V-E-R-L-T-H-A-Y-E-R, 1917. Yep. And uh, I know the story that goes with that ranch. They had one hell of a ranch. At the time there was eight boys. They come over on the wagon trains, and um, they had a keg of beer, and they crossed the Snake River, and it was kind of harrowing, I guess. And I, I'm not sure the full story, but if I remember right, it was quite harrowing, and those boys thought they should tap that keg of beer. And the rule was wherever they tap the keg is where they stay to make a new life. They tapped the keg, just uh, they crossed the river there on the snake and said, hey, this is where we stay. There was eight boys, and one of them was Verl. And uh, Verl was one of the really good cowboys. And um, they put together one heck of a ranch. They really did. And uh, 
I've run around with and I'm very good friends with a descendant of the Thayer family. I know uh, his dad very well. His dad flew the very first turbine Huey helicopters, tested them before Vietnam, mm. and pushed them through their limits to see what they could what they could handle. And um, anyway, that name meant a lot to me up there, and it was deteriorating quite quite a bit. And I wanted to save it; I didn't want it to disappear. And so, um, it's probably carved three quarters of an inch deep in that yeah, sandstone. Yeah, about three quarters of an inch deep, and, and and who knows how deep it was back then when he actually did it. And so. We went to a lot of work to uh, to save that, to get it here and place it back into the stone. And uh, it's uh, it's got a special place up there. Was it light? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Was that a light it, rock? <laughs> so just to give everybody an idea of what that is, it um, is 38 inches long, 16 inches wide, and... 12 inches deep and, you know, solid sandstone. And I don't know, three trips, four trips to get it cut. And then we went up there and built runners. And when she come loose, we slid it out. And we had a bed of sand to, to, to let her come down into. And when it, when we come out, we couldn't hold it. It was, it was heavier than what we could hold on to. And I, that really surprised me. And we set it down, but she came down a little bit too hard, and she cracked and broke, and that broke my heart. But I thought, okay, we got two pieces. Two pieces turned into four before we got off the mountain. and um, But we did. And uh, so it'll be protected there for forever. Vernal Thayer, 1917. And a drawing of a horse. The drawing of the horse was uh, Rankin Crow. Um, he... Uh, he was quite a cowboy uh, in this country. He, uh, I knew Rankin Crow when I was a kid. I could always go into the saddle shop um, when we would come to town at Vail, the Vail Shoe Shop saddle shop, and Rankin would always be in there. And uh, he always knew who I was because uh, he, he ran a lot of horses up in our country, uh, wild horses, and had horse traps and stuff. And he knew my granddad very well. And every time he saw me, he, uh, he always told the story of the first motorcycle First uh, putt-putt motorcycle I ever saw was my dad was driving it. He was uh, up the head of Hunter Creek. Uh, he had his pants down around his ankles going to the bathroom. One morning, my dad come flying by in that putt-putt and scared him so bad he pulled his pants up and left the whole mess right there <laughs> in his pants. And he told me that story, I'll bet you, 15, 20 times. Um, and so he always drew either a longhorned cow or that horse in caves and carved them in trees and carved them in sandstones. Rankin Crow drove, uh, he had a bucking stock and a rodeo, uh, rodeo stock. And he drove them all the way across Oregon, all the way to Portland with rodeos in just about every town all the way across. And uh, had a couple of shows in Portland and uh, sold everything and come home, I think, on the train. Hmm. Um, was quite a cowboy, neat, neat guy, really neat guy. And um, I've seen that horse inscription around the country in, some, in a couple caves, in a couple big sandstone rims, mainly up in that Ironside country where he kind of hung up around. So when I come across that in a rim not far from rural Thayer's, I thought, I need to save those. I think because uh, in time they'll disintegrate and they'll just be lost forever. 
and uh, I wanted to save him. And so with help from a very good friend, um, we got him out of there, and, and uh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. I like a, it. A nice I, addition to the stone. I like that uh, that carving of the horse. It is. Uh, it is special, huh? He, they were all the same. I mean, the minute you saw that, you knew who it was. It the, was Rankin Crow. The jaw is right. The yep. eye is right. The, the, the ear is the, right. The, the reins, the whole bit. The ears are right. Yep. Not only are the ears right, but the ears are right for what that horse should be doing right Agreed. There. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, 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 it's a neat piece. On. Yeah. Spot on. Pretty cool. Yep. What's next for the stone? Um, I got a rim that uh, has Ben Jones's name scribed into it in 1912, I believe. That's where I grew up. It, it will go into one of those two sections. Um, there's two of them. One is scribed in there of 1882, and another one is 1912. And um, he, uh, you know, the center of the family, a uh, good friend of mine, Bill Williams, used to chucker hunt with him. Ben was old. Bill was a young teenager. Uh, Bill had had polio. Uh, ben took him under his wing and said, let's go hunt chucker. And let's get your legs strong again. And uh, Bill never forgot that. He thought the world of Ben Jones. And so there's a chunk of rock that's got Ben's name scribed into it. Um, ben was a no-nonsense, you know, guy. There was no fluff with him. He was uh, he was quite a guy. Um, over here, I got the the the, uh, the taps hanging right there. Those taps were made by Celia. By the Visalia Saddle Company, and uh, I rode Ben's saddle for quite a few years. Tapaderos. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And so, what are tapaderos? They the- uh, they go over your stirrups. They protect uh, your your feet from uh, limbs, brush, stuff getting up through them. You get a big limb up through your stirrup, <laughs> gets into your horse, and now uh, you got a wreck. You know, and so helps for sorting cattle too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. You flat brimming buckaroos. Oh, yeah. You can't help it. <laughs> Spend half an hour figuring out which silk. I never had the rag. I was always, I was always scared on. to get that thing into my, into my turns, <laughs> going across that horn and choking me to death. You know? It's just a desert fashion show down here. That's, you and your That's the Nevada boys. No, no. You just you got me wrong. It's just like this. We're back to the smoke jumper repeller <laughs> thing, man. <laughs> oh. My little sister was in a buckaroos for a while, and I told her the next flat brim hat you bring back here, I'm killing the man wearing it. I uh, <laughs> over him. <laughs> had a good friend that a really good friend. He's still a good, great, great friend. And he uh, he came home one time from I don't know Jordan Valley rodeo or whatever, and he had the flat brim Nevada buckaroo, you know, the big rag around his neck, and Stephanie came home, and he took off the rag and, and rolled that into a Texas taco roll on that. And he says, I am done with this Nevada. I think he got his ass kicked at the dance or something. Good. Some Nevada cowboy or something. I'm glad. Oh, All right. Oh, this has been fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, sincerely, that's a, that's a, a unique and special experience for me, and and I appreciate it. And um, in all sincerity, I do, I do encourage you to to get started on your own show. Um, I think this is a great place for it. You have an aptitude both for for asking questions and for telling stories of your own. And that's what it takes. Thanks, man. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company and I'd seen their gear while I was a Marine, but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market and frankly not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high quality and innovative products for hunters as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country too. Check out all that SIG has to offer on their website, SIGSour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SIG. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.